In episode 15, Patrick and Cyprian speak with Dr. Andrew King of D-Wave Systems and Dr. Cristiano Nasoli of Los Alamos National Laboratory. Topics covered include artificial spin ice, nanomagnets, programmatic manipulation of quasi-particles, the new D-Wave Advantage processor, and how quantum developments can clarify our perception of fundamental physics. Welcome to Entangled Things, your quantum computing podcast, hosted by Patrick and Cyprian. Welcome, everyone, to a very exciting episode of Entangled Things. Um, we've got some very interesting guests, but, but before we get to that, how are you doing, Cyprian? Hi, Patrick. Very, very well. And uh, indeed, as you mentioned, very excited about this upcoming episode of Entangled Things. So uh, we've got uh, two people who've been working on some of the most interesting things I've heard about recently. Uh, Andrew and Cristiano, I'll let you guys introduce yourselves and then we'll get to what you've been doing. So hello, my name is uh, Andrew King. I'm a director of performance research at D-Wave Systems. Uh, where I've been there for about uh, eight years. And uh, my background is in computer science, so not really quantum, but I have come to learn a few things. Excellent. Cristiano? Hello, my name is Cristiano Nizoli. I'm a scientist in the theoretical division at Los Alamos National Lab in Los Alamos, New Mexico, which you might remember for bringing you some uh, exciting things, such as the atomic bomb. Um, I'm a scientist involved in uh, magnetism and frustration. I'm a theoretical physicist, but generally work a lot with experimentalists. Excellent. So <clears throat> to, put, to, to get us started off, you guys at Los Alamos are using D-Wave systems, and your research um, has been greatly accelerated, I think, based on, on what this paper that you've just released. So can you guys tell us like what you discovered and... And I, I think I understand why, but I won't say it. I'll let you say it first, <laughs> why it's important. Okay, so, so there are, of course, uh, there is an investment in D-Ware and Los Alamos since 2015. And I, was, I have to credit a colleague, which is the last author in the paper. His name is uh, Alejandro. And he's the one who knew I was doing this artificial spin ice thing, of which I can talk more later if you yes. want, and, uh, and, uh, and came and talked to me and said we should do it. Um, the D-Wave machine says we have it. We have an advantage there because now many people have it. And, and then he, uh, he also contacted Andrew uh, at a conference from what I understand. He basically put together the group, and I had this previous knowledge from 2000. 2006, in which we introduced basically this new field um, called artificial spin ice, in which we put the binary variables together, in that case, in the forms of magnetic nano islands, uh, which can uh, have um, magnetization that, because of shape and isotropy, points in one direction or another, thus making them binary eisenspin. And we put them together in different geometries to generate deliberately some exotic effect in their um, uh, collective uh, dynamics. And so to him, I knew very little about D-Wave because I'm not really much into um, uh, computer science, etc. But he did know 
And, and you know, of course, those are binary variable, uh, variables, but quantum, described by a, a Pauli matrix. Um, and so he had this idea, maybe we can generate a spin eyes in this uh, machine. And so he contacted Andrew, and we took it from there. Uh, so uh, I have been designing the systems to be fabricated in nanomagnets, mostly with collaborators at Yale University, the group of Peter Schiffer, but also we realize them in other settings, uh, for instance, colloids uh, gravitationally trap with a group of Pietro Tierno at University of Barcelona. Um, there is also there are also applications to met mechanical metamaterials. So this is to say we have a set of mathematical ideas behind that, uh, which basically consist in a study of frustration and the disorder it leads even a low temperature and the degeneracy and now you can use it to generate the materials that behave in weird ways and normal material don't this set of ideas is quite transportable but d-wave appeared to be really like an ideal platform for that because it's incredibly controllable and 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 uh, uh, andrew will explain it better but uh, a machine has a proprietary graph, and you can sort of um, of this, uh, you know, qubits that can be coupled in many different ways uh, within mm. the, uh, that graph, and uh, so it becomes a problem of embedding whatever you're trying to achieve within that graph, and if that embedding is possible, you can realize really a bunch of very very interesting things. Until I heard about, oh, sorry. Uh, no, no, I was saying that Andrew should probably elaborate more. Well, um, well, let, me, let, me, let me tee that up a little bit. So until I heard about this um, incredible work, I didn't realize that D-Wave was a platform in this way. I thought it was a computing platform, and I didn't, I didn't see it being used in <clears throat> fundamental research. Is this something that's, that's kind of common now, or is this yeah. a unique It situation? is becoming very common. So, yeah, this is something that, um, that was kind of – it goes back to this original idea that uh, Richard Feynman is often credited for saying, if you're going to, if you're going to simulate a, a quantum system, you'd better be using a quantum system basically. Right. And, and so um, this is using quantum computers as quantum simulators. Now um, the D wave processor is often thought as uh, simply an optimizer. Um, and the optimization formulation that it solves is, is known to physicists as an Isaac model. So you have a set of spins and a set of interactions between the spins, and you have to find a, a configuration. Each spin is up or down, and you find a configuration that minimizes the energy. Right. And this is an NP-complete problem, so you can, you can map uh, many, many interesting optimization problems to it. And so that's, that's what people think of most of the time. But if you actually, instead of um, kind of optimizing optimizing the energy of a physical system because that's what the, the processor is really doing instead of trying to solve an, a combinatorial optimization problem with that method you could just actually be exploring the structure of uh, low energy configurations of a magnetic system wow. which is what we've done here that's amazing what what i when you brought up Feynman and uh what i like to say is if I gave you three sketches of people to find in Times Square with classical computing with, as, as, as related to simulation, they would be stick figures and you'd have a, a tough time finding them. 
But with quantum, there's a promise that simulation will be more like uh, HD photos where you'd actually have a good chance of understanding what you're seeing in the simulation. So it's, it's a huge, it promises a huge leap forward in material science. Yeah, and you see, you see, uh, many of the, the the present day quantum platforms are being used as simulators. Excellent. Um, so one of the things that I I picked up, and I'm not I'm probably the only one on the call without a PhD. Uh, one of the things that I picked up in looking uh, over the work is the mention of potential applications to memory. And I know one of the problems that Cyprian and I have talked about quite extensively is the fact that. Quantum computers right now don't have a memory. You have to program them from scratch. They, they don't have a way to interact with data. Um, is, is, that a pa- is that something that might this might help solve? Well, this is kind of uh, would be off in the distance, but I think we have to talk about monopoles before we talk about memory. So Let's do um, that. you would be encoding a, a, a piece of memory that you want to save as a, as a charged region in the magnetic lattice. And this charged region would have would have a charge that um, that manifests itself as a magnetic monopole, um, and it's not it's not a, a it's not an elementary magnetic monopole. These these have been uh, postulated but never uh, observed or or um, or pinned down. Um, but it's a it's what's called an emergent monopole. So it's a configuration of spins that behaves the way you think a monopole would behave. So if you know a, a magnet has two poles and mm-hmm. um, in theory, you might be able to separate those two poles into, um, you know, separate entities with opposite uh, charge. And so you'd be, by manipulating those charged entities, you could, uh, in principle, uh, engineer a, a new form of memory. So when, and maybe I'm muddying the water, do, do you get entanglement when you separate mon- two monopoles? Because I know they cancel out when you bring them together. Uh, in in this system, uh, we 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 have not shown evidence of of entanglement between uh, the two monopoles, but um, but I'll I'll throw it to Cristiano actually because he's the expert there of what would okay. happen in a in a zero temperature a quantum spin liquid. So so if you want some perspective on this idea of monopoles in in uh, it's been nice. The idea was introduced in two thousand eight. But in a paper by uh, Castelnovos on the um, Mosner, which appeared on Nature, and it was appeared in the, and it was introduced in the context of uh, uh, natural. Let's call it natural, although it's a bit on crystal natural spinized materials, and it might seem a little bit uh, uh, exotic the idea of an emerging monopole, but it's really quite easy. You have a bunch of dipoles, right? And you know that uh, uh, when you have a magnet, you have a north pole and a south pole. And you can never separate them. Like if you break the magnet in two, you will have two other magnets with their own north pole and south pole. But you can always consider uh, the north pole or the south pole, in a sense, a monopole. Now, what happens in spinized material is that these monopoles are, in fact, the north pole and south pole of a very long string of spin. And this string is occasionally called a Dirac string. But because the material is frustrated and is disordered, there are many Dirac strings you can choose connecting these monopoles. And so the system becomes non-reminiscent of these strings. And you can describe the system like as if you have this, two, this pair of monopoles, or indeed many pairs of monopoles, completely separated one from the other, going around. 
So this is a phenomenon that the physicists often call fractionalization, because you are somehow fractionalizing the dipole into monopoles, that, whereas in a single dipole, they will be confined at the end of the dipole. Now they can, you know, really go around. Freed them. They're Precisely. free. They are free. <laughs> However, they are not completely free, even at a classical level. And uh, uh, I'll interject something here. Uh, from the point of view of a quantum entanglement with Andrew, we have only scratched the surface of what can be done. Because one of the beautiful aspects of D-Wave is that you can, in a sense, control how much you entangle the variables through this, co- this so-called transverse fields of which Andrew can, can talk more. And we sort of did uh, a quasi-classical study. Right. But in the future, we can really do uh, uh, more of a quantum study. Uh, so I close this parenthesis. Even at the purely classical level, these monopoles do not live in a trivial vacuum. They're not just particles going around without filling each other because they are emergent manifestation of, that, of the underlying spin system. They interact between each other in uh, in ways that uh, are due to the entropy of the system. And in fact, one of the things that satisfied me very much about this work was that Andrew and, uh, and, and Alejandro um, were able to check this interaction and this mutual screening of these uh, monopoles uh, quite effectively. So they are, in a sense, entangled, uh, they're not quantum entangled, even at the classical level, in the sense that they feel each other, they interact with each okay. other. They, if you put, which is what Andrew did, if you put a monocle at the center, this is another beautiful thing you can do with a D-wave machine. You have so much control. You can actually pin down a monocle and then let the system generate these own monocles. And these monocles don't go around randomly they uh, uh, situate themselves in order to screen the monopole charges. that we, Just like uh, the kind of screening you would have with electrical charges. So I thought that was quite, quite uh, nice. Interesting. Hmm. Very interesting. So Cyprian and I have discussed it, and it was brought up on our first guest episode with Richard Campbell, that one of the first things a quantum computer is going to do is help invent the next better quantum computer. <laughs> and, and fundamental science like this seems like it could really tip the direction, <clears throat> which makes it incredibly exciting. It's like being in uh, Turing's lab and and being able to decide what kind of tubes they use. Uh, the fundamentals are being developed right before our eyes. Um, do do you have a clear plan for what's next? And is it something that that we could uh, hear about, or is that all top secret? I know you're a national laboratory, so. So, so uh, this uh, looks like more of a question for Andrew. I thought so. Since it's about uh, um, computation. But yes, there is no secret about this. So everything we do here is published, etc. So not, not a big deal. There's, there's no sub-basements. <laughs> yeah, there's no there there's got to be a sub-basement somewhere. With, you know. Nobody's going to reach you and, uh, and, uh, and damage the brakes of your car to simulate uh, an accident <laughs> as you drive. <laughs> Don't worry. And, and uh. on the same note, I would like to add a, 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 an extra spin to the question before Andrew gets to, to answer. You were mentioning something that for me was particularly interesting. You were referring to 
the ability to programmatically manipulate these these emergent quasi particles. And then I, I would really love to to understand a little bit more. Is that something that you can already do? Is that something that you are looking to? And uh, to be more accurate, I am wondering of what kind of capabilities this possibility of programmatic manipulation do you think can open uh, as of now and in the in the future well as of now we're doing the easy stuff it's all it's all low-hanging fruit um, but uh, I mean it's not it's not really that easy but there's a lot of very very interesting stuff that could be potentially done in the future so um, whenever you talk about manipulating quasi particles if you often talk about manipulating quasi-particles <laughs> as part of your day-to-day -day conversation, um, you, you have to be able to think about mutual statistics of anionic braiding. Um, and yes. so, <laughs> obviously. Um, so th I, this, what I'm really talking about is that you have certain types of quasi-particles, not necessarily just uh, magnetic monopoles, um, but other types of quasi-particles um, called anions. And... Um, these have the property that they kind of, um, it matters, uh, if you, if you walk one around in a circle around the other one, it changes the characteristics of the system. And these, um, quasi particles are actually the, the, the fundamental, uh, computational unit in principle of topological quantum computing. So I'm not saying that we're on the verge of, of, uh, making a topological quantum computer. But this is uh, one of the next logical steps that uh, people would be moving towards. Um, so trying to for clarification, manipulate. topological is the new state of matter that's been recently discovered or postulated. Um, well, I, I don't want to get too much into it, but they, yeah, my, I mean, top, topological quantum computing is, um, is the, a, an, a paradigm of quantum computing that uses um, anionic quasi-particles um, and braiding to protect the computation. So um, when people talk about topological protection, it means, um, you know, if you have a Mobius strip and you kind of uh, bend it around, it's still a Mobius strip, meaning it, it still has this twist in it. And this twist is, 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 is not possible to get rid of it without tearing the, the Mobius strip. Um, so this is, in a sense, topologically protected. And um, for... Uh, quantum computing, it's very important to have this sort of robustness uh, to uh, noise and decoherence. So this is the promise of topological quantum computing. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. The, the, the question that I wanted to, uh, to, to raise as well for, for our, mostly for our audience is um, it's, it's clear for me that, that spin ICs are some kind of like very, very special thing. But on, on a practical note, why, why would they be important for us, right? Why, why the effort? Because it's clear, like, uh, I'm 100% sure that our listeners, uh, they are super excited of, of the, uh, let's say, the theoretical part and, and what it means to, to start this type of research. But I'm sure they also kind of wondering, uh, what are the potential things, practical things that that would come down from from this kind of of research path? Cristiano, yes. So I guess this is a question for me. Uh, the interest I have in uh, spinized materials um, uh, predates uh, the wave and is more about generating magnets with. Uh, 
properties that are generally not found in natural magnets. And this has both a theoretical interest for me because it's a good uh, gym to experiment certain concepts in statistical mechanics, in theoretical physics, that sometimes have been put forward even decades ago, but there was no platform to test them, and other concepts that we have uh, developed explicitly explicitly for this. So he has one motivation purely in the realm of magnetism, uh, creating magnets at the nanoscale, which have uh, um, unusual properties and possibly down the line also unusual functionalities based on the ability to design and finally engineer them. So, um, yes, I was just going to say that that sounds like that could revolutionize areas such as generators and engines, motors. Yes. So, so yes. So the idea, but, but also, so these systems are generally classical because we're talking about nano islands of uh, a few hundred nanometers long and maybe hundred nanometers wide. And then from two to 20 nanometers thick. Uh, although as we miniaturize, uh, um, uh, then uh, some level of uh, uh, quantum effects are going to appear. Of course, in the natural material that inspired uh, this kind of research, which is the actual, the, the, the original spin eyes of late 90s, uh, and which is being studied now by a sort of a different but a similar crowd than us, um, they are now also studying quantum spin eyes. And so in a sense, a D-wave uh, has been... Uh, um, uh, a kind of incredible accelerator, meaning that certain idea and concepts that, you know, when you, it's very hard to fabricate this thing. It's very hard to characterize these things. Um, if you characterize them at home with magnetic force microscopy, say, uh, you cannot have them thermally active. If you have them thermally active and evolving, you need to, you know, book a beam time in some particle accelerator and characterize them with x-ray and stuff. Uh, so it's expensive, it's cumbersome. And in D-Wave, you can do all these things very, very cleanly, both the characterization, but also it has a level of control that you, that's hard to get in the nanomaterials. So one of the motivations for me is to learn more about this material, test some of the ideas that we have, and then import it into a magnetic material. But another one is what uh, Andrew also mentioned, right? Uh, um, there is a topological computing, and there are these onions as topologically protected particles. Um, being able to show that you can generate in a D-Way machine topologically protected particles, starting from the simple you can think about, and, uh, and in this case, we're magnetic uh, monopole. Uh, it's a good proof of principle that this could be done in uh, in the future. As he said, uh, we went for long ending fruits. Also, we didn't want to leapfrog. You know, at the beginning, we didn't know how much of this was reproducible in a wave machine. Uh, but it turns out uh, it's a very good uh, proof of principle. By the way, even classically, monopoles are topologically protected in the sense that once you have a monopole, you can get rid of it. Uh, you can only annihilate it. In, 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 in pairs. However, that also depends on the underlying spin geometry you put. 
because if you change the spin geometry or you make a mixed geometry, there might be places in your system where the monopole cannot disappear and other places where instead the monopole can't. So you can also think about these monopoles as binary um, information carrier, like in, the con- in a similar way in which you think about the spintronics. Um, so I'm, I'm making the long story even longer, but to boil it down, <laughs> there is a really large variety of direction in which we are interested and so we pin it down by saying, well, we understand this geometry. We have some theoretical uh, analysis of this geometry. Let's reproduce this geometry, see that it works, see these emergent particles, confine them, see that they screen according to theory, and there is a very nice fit of the theoretical screening that is uh, perfectly, very well validated by the experimental analysis, etc. And and also use uh, this uh, uh machine as a sort of big mechano to uh, build a system instead than just as an optimizator. Uh, um, and that was part of the interest. But there are many other directions in which we are, uh, um, which we are interested in. So it, it sounds like... I, I think that's, that's absolutely fascinating because from, from what you describe... Go ahead. Uh, like this, this fundamental research that is basically uh, en- enabled and in the same time uh, uh, speed up uh, by 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 what Divade is providing with some of the practical applications can can really change a lot of things. And and Andrew, I'm I'm wondering uh, by by listening to to uh, to the discussion here, is would it be safe to say that that D-Wave is way past the point where it only provides uh, uh, adiabatic quantum computing solutions and it's already expanded into providing platforms for fundamental research in quantum computing? Would that be too far stretched? Um, no, I don't think it would be, but but maybe not for the reason that you're thinking of. Um, so all of this, um, all of the stuff that we've done um, can essentially be viewed from the classical perspective uh, in in the low energy manifold of of states in this um, kind of material that we program into the d-wave processor um, so the the dynamics are driven by quantum fluctuations but in this in this paper which is it's kind of um, it's kind of a, a new idea and it's very general so there's lots more to to follow up on um, so it's it's in a certain sense um, introductory. Um, but in this paper, everything is sort of quasi-classical. But um, some other pieces of research done uh, recently on D-Wave processors uh, look at simulation of uh, actually quantum systems. Um, so this is this is kind of far from the adiabatic optimization uh, point of view. And then, the, of course, there's there's also the technical difference between quantum annealing and adiabatic quantum computation. Um, so uh, D-Wave, maybe just to, to take a step back, um, D-Wave was kind of based on the adiabatic theorem, which says that if you if you change, so we start we start off this, the, and I'm just going back to, to D-Wave and quantum annealing in general. So if we start off at the beginning of the computation, we have 
uh, everything completely uh, dominated by quantum fluctuations. We're in a, 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 a superposition product state, and it's it's both extremely quantum and also extremely simple. So even though it's quantum, it's not interesting. And then you gradually attenuate the quantum fluctuations and turn on this classical problem that you want to solve. And somewhere in the middle, you have a really nice mixture of quantum fluctuations and uh, classical terms. And then you get a lot of interesting stuff going on. And then gradually, you continue to turn off the, the quantumness in the system, and you end up at a low energy state of the classical problem that you wanted to solve. Now, what we've done recently in other pieces of work um, is you take a step back and you go into the middle of the computation where you have this beautiful mixture of quantum and classical fluctuations. And you can actually study those systems. So you can you can study really interesting behaviors there. And this is like, uh, you know, looking under the hood of a car while it's still running. Uh, you can actually get a better look at the performance of what's going on than you can just by looking at what happens at the end, which can be a little bit uh, black box in a certain sense. That's amazing. I, I, it's kind of like finding out that my computer also <clears throat> is a solar panel. <laughs> yeah. It, it does can just I, can I add a little expect. bit, uh, a little thing to what Andrew just said? Please. What Andrew just mentioned is very dear to me because uh, a nice feature of this machine is that the ground state can be considered completely classical. But then you turn on this transverse field and you can entangle the quantum variables. So that gives you a very precise way to um, manipulate how quantum, in a sense, your system is. And um, this is important to me because I, I, most of my research is in the concept of frustration. And frustration is uh, something we are not all, uh, very aware of and very similar to our life, is when you have a bunch of constraints but you cannot satisfy all of them at the same time. And this prevents our society, for instance, or our lives to completely order, which is a good thing because otherwise uh, if we were all crystal ordered, <laughs> we would be dead, right? So frustration might seem frustrating. It's actually good. Now, going back to D-Wave, uh, you can encode inside the machine something that is not frustrated and will have a perfectly ordered and perfectly regular ground state. But if you encode into it something that is frustrated, then uh, you will have a low energy state that is degenerate. That means a very large number of configurations are all in the ground state. So each of these configurations can represent a situation, can represent a solution of a problem, can, uh, can represent many, many different things because at, at the end it's all binary variables. Now you turn on the, um, the um, transverse field and you entangle and you subject this ground state to quantum fluctuation. And now you can start asking yourself, when I turn it on and off, how much of this classical past is remembering? Are there configuration of the classical past that are, uh, for perhaps topological reason, stable toward quantum fluctuation and stuff like that? And we sort of, uh, Andrew, sort of kind of did something like that because in the paper, uh, we watch, for instance, monopole moving around. And their motion, though the ground state is classical, 
was activated by quantum fluctuation. So that's also a novelty that in this system we never saw. Generally, this thing move around because of thermal fluctuation. And there were also thermal fluctuation in the D-wave, where temperature was not exactly zero. But these materials were, these monopoles were kicked around basically by quantum fluctuation. And so it's already interesting the fact that you have a set of monopoles, you turn on the clock, on and off quantum fluctuation, and you just don't just go into a completely different ensemble. You go into an ensemble that has a memory of its past, but the monopoles have moved around meanwhile. And so they are activated by quantum fluctuation. That also is uh, something of great interest to me, which we have not explored very deeply, uh, but that in the future uh, is of, I believe, is, uh, is of, um, of great interest, interest for issues of uh, entanglement, decoherence, etc. Uh, and also extending the notion of quasi-particle to stuff like anions and topologically protected one, as Andrew has uh, mentioned, and do the same with both. So, are you constrained at all by the number of qubits? I don't. I haven't heard anything that you've said that that indicates that you're waiting for a certain number of of stable qubits to be available. Plus, D Wave has so many compared to any other platform. Um, is is there a level of in a couple of years where you'll be able to do things that you can't do now, or is it just about time and 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 a focus? I think uh, I think we're getting close to the point where. We're saying, okay, my internet connection is really suffering, sending all these qubit states back and forth to the lab. Stop building more qubits. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, wow. So the, let me just describe. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, this is this is this is. I'm just talking about my own bad habits. Actually, uh, so, you know, sending running experiments natively from my laptop in Montreal, and then sending each job to to <laughs> British Columbia, where the computers are. Um, but you know, I have unlimited internet, so what's the difference? Talk about a first world problem, right? I have too many qubits. <laughs> so, um, one, so let me just kind of go over the stats of the, the new advantage processor, which was, it's the, that's the name of the new D wave processor, which was released last fall. And, um, there's, uh, the, the systems that we're using have about 5,600 active qubits and, uh, they have an expanded connectivity. So, you know, we, we talk about qubit-qubit interactions and these energetic terms that either force qubits to be the same or different. And um, what we would like to do is be able to control this, this term, this coupling between any arbitrary pair of qubits. But that would mean that you have millions of couplers and it's simply not practical to fabricate that at this time, um, at least in a superconducting processor. Um, people on other platforms might disagree, but, you know, uh, they can they can uh, they can be happy with that and then and then deal with the other problems of whatever platform they're using. But we so we have a fixed geometry of of these couplers that we're able to use, and so the number of couplers per per qubit or the number of neighboring qubits that each qubit has has gone from it was six for you know about ten years and now it's gone up to fifteen, and so wow. this is a this is a big improvement. Um, mm. We're able to. Uh, and you know we we've been doing some some new experiments um kind of building on on this uh research that we've been doing and and the the results are really very uh you know in a certain sense breathtaking if you struggled with these experiments for a long time and you suddenly get something where all your problems have kind of gone away it's it's really very satisfying um <laughs> but bet. 
But we we always want more connectivity and we want uh, more coherence, lower temperature, lower noise. Um, there's there's a lot of parameters that we need to optimize, and they're they're usually um, compromises that need to be made. So I, I would say that the number of qubits is declining in um, in importance in terms of these compromises. Mm. You're getting to a point where that's not the biggest problem. Not having enough qubits isn't the yeah, problem. That's it's right. connectivity or it's it's thermal and that's a good that's a real watershed moment i think that's that's but a big it, it also depends on what you want to do with it so um for for a lot of people they just want to solve a certain optimization problem and so they want a lot of qubits and they want a lot of connectivity and they you know the temperature is is not really if you're not doing quantum simulation maybe the temperature doesn't make a big difference maybe it does um so different parameters are important to different people but because we're doing um, very finely tuned and careful simulations of both classical and quantum systems. Um, we really need to we need we need to be able to control the the Hamiltonian, which is the energy function that we're designing. Uh, we need to be able to control the Hamiltonian very finely, and we want it to to do what we're telling it to do. So this is Ultimately. a you know this this is a common trope um, saying that uh, computers uh, the problem with computers is that they do exactly what you tell them to. Um, but I don't think we're, we're quite there with quantum computers. It's more like kids. They don't do what you tell them to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sometimes they even do the opposite. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Most times. Uh, uh, I, I mean, I can't say how, how interesting this is. I'm sure our audience is, is, is in the same boat. Um, there's also a lot to take in. There's a lot of uh, concepts and ideas um, that, that we need to get up to speed on. I, definitely think we should be talking to you guys as often as you'll allow us. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, um, that's great. But, uh, we have another work coming out of it, just yeah. writing it up right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> We find that occasionally we'll do a topic episode uh, as a filler. We like to do a lot of these you know, guest episodes, but the topic episodes, I think you've opened up a bunch of them for us to talk about model poles and spin ice and things like that because it's this underlying understanding that that's going to help people come up with the next ideas. And so it feels like, it feels like a real watershed moment. The fact that you're solving things that Dirac was postulating. And um, so. Well, it is really an exciting time for quantum simulation. And uh, there's, there's a lot going on in that field with the near-term programmable quantum devices, which is, it's just like a lot of really amazing work. Yeah. And in material science is really where I think, Everybody focuses on the security because of of Shor's algorithm, and mm-hmm. and that that has its place, and that's probably why the governments are putting any money at all into it. But the material science is really where I think we're gonna. It, it, if they look back five hundred years from now, that's really going to be the benefit from everything we're doing in the next de- decades. Um, so yeah, we're running low. We're running low on time. Cyprian, anything else you wanted to bring up or? One one particular topic which which kind of caught my 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 attention. Um, and it's mostly a question directed to, to, to Christian. You mentioned uh, at some point that these preliminary results and maybe uh, some future results of this, this research that, that you are doing uh, could actually be a, a kind of like food for thought for some of the ways in which we understand fundamental physics uh, uh, today, right? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm specifically kind of referring here to the age-old question of let's explain what a particle is, right? Precis- uh, precisely. 
Could could you elaborate a little bit on 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 that? Because I I, I think that's kind of like an absolutely fascinating door that that you're opening uh, with with this kind of like uh, vision that that you um, mentioned. Sure. So actually, you anticipated me because I was <laughs> I was willing to to talk about that. So uh, thank you very much for giving me that opportunity. Uh, my background as an undergraduate, my, my my, my undergraduate thesis was a calculation of quantum gravity. And my background is particle physics, was particle physics and uh, standard model and stuff like that, right? And uh, you're aware of a concept of beyond the standard model. So when we talk about, and now I, I would probably make lots of people happy, uh, sorry, angry because perhaps some people happy because people tend to have strong ideas about that. But when we talk about the particle, let's reason more philosophically. What are we really talking about? Like in classical physics, a particle, you know, you don't see particles around you, do you? You see objects that for the uh, purpose of uh, modeling, you can assimilate to a particle if you want to model when you throw a stone, or even if you want to model the orbit of planet Earth around the Sun, you can approximate to a particle, but the planet Earth is certainly not a particle. So um, as for many other things in the very, very small world, we introduce concepts that comes from simplification of our daily life. And we use it to understand the mathematical formalism. One could argue that what is real are the Dirac field or the uh, electromagnetic field or the Higgs field, etc. And the particles are just a convenient way for us to describe the excitations of this field, uh, which can be mapped into our notion of a point particle in, in the classical realm, but just imperfectly, because of course there is always the uncertainty principle. So there are um, lines of research in the beyond the stardom model thinking where people try to get particles, but even the structure of a space-time as emergent from an underlying mesh of binary variables that interact. And this is just also what we see here, right? We see that you can, in a coarse grain picture, forget about the underlying spin system and describe the system in terms of these monopoles that you see that are particle. And they emerge from this system as an emergent description. They don't just emerge themselves, they emerge endowed with a mutual interaction. So, you know, well, one could make the argument that something similar might be going on at the elementary level. But maybe elementary particles are just uh, uh, an emergent, and their interaction in fact, are just an emergent description of some uh, more complex underlying reality that we don't yet see. And uh, this seems very bold to say, but if you look at the history of uh, uh, fundamental physics, lots of concepts that are now fundamental there were borrowed from condensed matter from theory of phase transition, from renormalization group to the very Higgs boson, etc. So um, very often it happens that uh, uh, when you can produce something uh, at, at the level of uh, condensed matter or statistical physics, etc., as we are doing now, uh, he has implications for something more fundamental. And here we can show that we build a system of qubits 
And then this really complex system of qubits can be described just in terms of a few emergent particles going around, screening each other, being activated by quantum field. So, and after all, the standard model is merely a phenomenological parameterized model. There is nothing really, really fundamental about it, right? So it's just been introduced to explain a further, further experiment. So this is what I was mentioning that publicity release. And I hope this answer your, your question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's absolutely fascinating. The the the, the thing that that uh, the, the the mere idea that that stuff like I don't know leptons and quarks and things like that could be manifestations of something more fundamental than that, right? Yeah. I mean, it's 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 amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'm that sure definitely we'll, answers the question. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure we'll never get to the bottom of it, and that's what makes it interesting. So, <laughs> Too, too much energy involved for that, but much less energy, <laughs> much less energy involved to power a D-wave machine. That's right. Uh, it's been I can't can't describe how great it's been to talk to both of you. I, your research is super exciting. The platform is also super exciting. Uh, really, thanks a lot. I wish we had another couple of hours to talk, but we want to keep these to a a, a set time. Um, thanks again for joining us. Well, thanks. Let's do it again sometime. Absolutely, I'll hold you to that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Bye. guys. It was, it was a really good way to start Thanks. a Friday. Bye. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.